Not very many people know this, but the artist Cy Twombly and the other artist Robert Rauschenberg had a relationship for a long time and they had an affair and then they were friends for many, many years. Um, but during that time, Robert Rauschenberg was going through a rough patch and it was during the summer of 1951 when they happened to be at Black Mountain College together. And he actually tried to end his life and Cy Twombly uh, saved him and, and sort of coaxed him back to shore. He tried to drown himself in a, in a lake on the property of, of Black Mountain College. And, you know, besides the fact that anybody in that sort of position, it's it's a huge thing, it's like a big deal, but um, there's also the added element of art history and the cultural sort of significance of the work that Rauschenberg did, and perhaps we wouldn't have gotten any of that or a lot of that if Cy Twombly hadn't interjected and, and coaxed him back to shore. The reason we know this story now is not because either of the artists ever talked about it, um, but because of some personal letters that were exchanged between Robert Creeley and Charles Olson, uh, who were witness to the event. So Charles Olson, both of them were poets, and Charles Olson um, ended up being kind of the leader of Black Mountain for a while and becoming kind of wildly unpopular, actually. But that's we're going to do another episode on Black Mountain in general. So they were sort of I guess, observing what was happening, not really realizing what was happening exactly. And yeah, just kind of talking about it in this sort of lackadaisical um, way. And that's the only reason why we know that this ever happened. This episode is about Cy Twombly and his work. And, you know, it's really, it's his artist feature episode, but you really can't talk about him and his work, I've realized, without talking about this event. Um, I learned about this through a biography that I read called Chalk, uh, The Art and Erasure of Cy Twombly by Joshua Rifkin. And it's amazing. It's such a brilliant example of what I think writing about someone's life could look like. And um, it was really engaging and, and really just beautifully written. And the preface to it was this story about them in the middle of the lake. And I think there's a reason for that. You know, you, you can't really discuss Cy Twombly's work without this, I think, because it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that a lot of the things that he was painting about or putting into his work um, stemmed from this time period and this relationship. There's a lot of things that you can look up or read on the internet that will be more of a timeline of just like facts of someone's life. That's not really what I want these artist features to be. I kind of want it to be more about the more interesting aspects of someone's life that might have or the materials they use or whatever, whether it's a practical thing or a personal thing, just something about it that kind of amplifies the work or turns up the volume or the saturation so that you can have a more full experience when you see it next. Or um, maybe it'll just like deepen your understanding of the work, or whatever. Like that's what's really interesting to me. Um, so this isn't going to be necessarily like, you know, he did this and then he did this and then he did this. There will be a little bit of that, but for the most part, it's going to be me sort of talking about um, kind of the more interesting aspects of his life and his work. Cy Twombly was always a painter. He was always interested in art, especially visual art, and um, he grew up in Lexington, Virginia. He attended an all-boys school and had what I would call a quintessential uh, Southern upbringing in a, in a white upper-class family, and or I guess you could say middle-upper-class family. Um, with all that that entails. And he had this kind of 
the best word I can think of to describe him is sort of Venusian. Like he just had this way of moving around the world that sort of just, he dripped around the world. Um, he had this sort of viscous, romantic, slow quality to him. The image that I always get when I imagine Sai Twombly walking around, when you see him and when you hear him, you just get this this feeling that like everywhere he walked, like flowers grew like you could just see his feet kind of like walking and then just like flowers kind of growing around each footstep that's kind of the energy that he had he he sort of had this aristocracy air so much so that Robert Rauschenberg who grew up very differently in Port Arthur Texas uh, also kind of southern but in a, in a very different way he uh, commented once that when he moved to Italy when Twombly moved to Italy. Um, I think he was recovering that aristocracy that he always felt by nature. I couldn't forget that he couldn't forget it. So that kind of says uh, says it all. <laughs> when the two of them met, Rauschenberg and Twombly, uh, Rauschenberg was only like three years older than him, but he was on his way to his second or third summer at Black Mountain College. He was already kind of immersed in the art world in New York and. Um, yeah, like I said, we're going to do a whole episode on Black Mountain because there's just so much there. There was so many incredible artists that were there. Everyone from like Ruth Asawa to Merce Cunningham to um, John Cage, just so many. And so we won't go too deep into it, but for the purposes of this episode, all you really need to know is that it was a kind of alternative liberal arts college that... Um, that allowed people to be a little bit more free and just kind of do whatever they felt like doing. So Rauschenberg had been going through a kind of rough patch at the time. His marriage was falling apart, no doubt, because of his relationship and affair with Cy Twombly. Um, he had just had a son, and so that was happening at the same time. He was sort of going through like a career dip, whereas Cy Twombly's work was kind of taking off. And again, they had an age difference of only about three years, but still you look at somebody who's three years younger than you and they're doing far better than you and you're kind of crashing already. That, you know, that can be tough. Yeah, he he sort of lost it and attempted to, to end his life. When I put myself in the position of somebody who has had an experience like this, at such a significant time period, during such a significant summer, at such a significant school. Um, maybe they knew how significant it was at the time, maybe they didn't. Regardless though, you know, you're young and in love and kind of being able to fully express that, um, you know, even if it's causing sort of ripples and, and drama in some regards, um, they weren't under the same amount of scrutiny that they would have been in any other place because they were at Black Mountain. Everybody, nobody cared. They were two guys in a relationship, but everybody knew. And so, you know, I imagine that and I imagine the kind of um, foundation that that would give as something to continue to draw from forever for the rest of your life as an artist. He would often depict stories from literature, like I said, as in the work analysis of the rose as sentimental despair and this was one of the the works that exists at the manila in houston and when you walk into that room the side twombly gallery if you're not careful that room will destroy you it's filled with these sort of bright red and pink flesh colored paintings that just sort of give you the feeling of the inside of someone's body using literature as a way to kind of represent the feeling because that was probably the only representation that they had at the time 
of anything that would come close to the way that they actually felt was the poetry of Rilke, which showed up in his work a lot. The poetry of uh, the Sufi poet Rumi, Alexander Pope's translation of the Iliad. These things, these epic journeys and these epic sort of love stories and, and themes of Eros like probably are the only things that even came close to touching the feeling that, that he had. When people used to ask Sai Twombly what his work was about, he used to say sex. It's like a way to laugh at the person who's asking you the question, but really it's actually true. When Sai Twombly first started making paintings, there was a very clear line between him and the other abstract expressionists. He was a young artist. I mean, you could definitely say that he just hadn't found his sort of flow yet necessarily. Um, that was entirely his, but he found it pretty quickly. But when you look at like the paintings he was making in the 50s, like, they were very New York. They were very dark. You could see the direct line between like him and Franz Klein, for example. Still, it just felt very um, of that time, of that place. They just, they, they were very different than what he ended up doing for the rest of his career after a certain point. And I can't help but notice that it was after he moved to Italy. It was once he had had some time and space away from this experience. And he was sort of looking back and thinking about it from maybe a little bit of a nostalgic perspective and perhaps that's just me projecting, but that's what that's what I feel when I look at his work and that's what makes it make sense to me. So after their summer together, uh, Twombly and Rauschenberg famously went traveling together. They took all these amazing photos together. Sai was really, really inspired by anything ancient, anything that had to do with um, archetypal kind of uh, stories that exist in literature. And in 1957, after Black Mountain, after he had already established himself as a painter, he moved to Rome and sort of ensconced himself there as, as an artist in the artist colony um, in Rome. And that's where he met his wife, uh, Baroness Tatiana Franchetti, and they had a kind of symbiotic and relatively peaceful coexistence. So he began to kind of make trips back and forth and live between Italy and Lexington. He enjoyed the slowness of both, I think, but um, and both of them matched his demeanor equally. But you know, he would kind of get really sick of one and then he would go back to the other and then he would get really sick of one and then he would go back to the other. He never really was the kind of artist that would go to the studio every single day and sort of wait for inspiration to come. He would just live his life and then, um, you know, inspiration would strike and then he would paint pretty fast and furiously and kind of feverishly uh, as most action painters did and he would be done with it and that, that was it. That was what came out and it was either good or it was destroyed and then something else was created. After living in Rome for a while, he was showing at Leo Castelli in New York and then somewhere else in Rome. Um, but then he eventually became friends with Larry Gagosian and got on the Gagosian roster. roster. Um, and he ended up settling down in Gaeta, which is kind of a sea town near Naples um, on the boot. And that's where he sort of found, I would say, even another level of just serenity in his work. And then by the 1980s, he was really working a lot on sculptures. And the sculptures were meant to kind of mimic the skyline that he would see out of his window in Gaeta. One of his good friends was uh, Sally Mann, the photographer, who's also somebody who grew up in Lexington. They became good friends. And um, when he would be in America, he would hang out with her. And then in Gaeta, he had 
a partner that he spent the rest of his life with at a certain point. Um, his name was Nicola Del Roscio, I think. And that's who ended up um, having control over his estate at the very end of his life. He sort of picked up photography at some point during that time as well. And I kind of went on a rabbit hole as I do to try to figure out what he was using as in terms of a camera and, and like printing situation with his photos because they came out looking very specific. Um, and I found that it was like this old French printing machine that doesn't exist anymore, of course, um, that was used at that time in like the 80s and or seven, maybe the late 70s, 80s. The, the idea was that he wanted control over the colors and they had to be very specific, of course. And um, he would just take pictures of sort of simple things and do a lot of soft focusing. And again, it was very like instantaneous, instant gratification sort of coming out of the moment. Um, so he would use instant film sometimes and um, cameras that would do things quickly. And I think just because he was older, when he started working more on sculptures and photography, um, it was maybe a bit easier than working on these enormous large-scale paintings, which he still did until his old age. But I wanted to begin the artist feature series with Cy Twombly because um, that's kind of where art began for me personally. I grew up in Houston, so even though art with a capital A wasn't necessarily on my radar um, in any kind of real way, my understanding of what art was or could be really began with seeing Cy Twombly's work and Mark Rothko's work, which is very nearby um, at the Rothko Chapel. For background, the Manila Collection in Houston boasts one of the largest collections of Cy Twombly's most coveted works. Uh, most of the works, I feel like, are from the 80s and 90s, and there was one I remember, I vividly remember seeing this um, for the first time when I was probably in college, actually. And that was this sculpture work called Thicket that he made in 1992. And it's just like this box with these plastered over flowers with like white house paint. And I remember thinking when I saw that, like, oh, you know, like in that moment, something really instantaneous happened to me where I understood suddenly what art was or could be. And it just like made sense to me in a way that that nothing else ever did before. So I think I kind of imprinted on Cy Twombly's work and Rothko's work. And in some kind of way, I don't think I've really been able to separate myself from, from that being my first imprint of what art was. And, and, you know, in that way, it's kind of a part of me, you know. And so um, to start this series with him was really a personal move. But besides that, I think overall, he kind of represents to me, the mark of a master in a way of, of being able to translate sensibility between things and passing it through your filter as an artist and it coming out on the other side just being like incredibly Cy Twombly-ish. Like he could take pictures of Americana, he could take pictures of fruit, he could take pictures of flowers and, you know, it didn't really matter. They would come out looking like exactly like his paintings. He's a perfect example, in my opinion, of somebody who can translate sensibility between mediums really, really seamlessly. And also, like, when I first experienced his work before knowing anything about him versus now after doing all this research, watching documentaries, reading books, reading websites, reading the books that, the sort of art books that I have from his exhibitions and all of that, I got it before I got it, and I knew it before I knew it, and I saw it before I saw it. In other words it was translated to me instantaneously through 
through the work itself. I didn't need all of that information to really get it. But once I had it, it just kind of cranked up the volume and it turned up the the saturation. Not everybody is a fan of Cy Twombly's work, though. And in fact, there's a kind of anti-Twombly sentiment, um, mostly in the art world, but I think just in the world in general, a lot of people don't really like understand abstract art. They don't understand um, Twombly specifically. You know, there's a lot of people that will say things like, oh, well, I could do that, or my five-year-old could do that. And there's really nothing that irks me more than that. (laughs) Um, But I digress. We won't go there in this episode. So there's this sort of team thing in the art world specifically with Jackson Pollock, who also got a lot of shit for being for being something that a five-year-old could do and team Twombly. And for some reason they, they get like pitted against each other. And I'm not really sure why, because Pollock came way before Twombly. And I think that's part of the problem is Twombly kind of came late in the game with the kind of style that he was coming with. And so people weren't really about that. I guess team Pollock sees the Twombly work as this sort of infantile, um, an ill-informed version of the Pollock stream that came much too late in the game. And I think the Twombly team doesn't really suggest against Pollock's work necessarily, just that they're different and more different than similar maybe. And um, even though they're part of the same movement technically, that Cy Twombly wasn't just a bored school child kind of scribbling on his desk. Um, He had a lot of feeling in the work and Pollock had a lot of alcohol and a lot of movement, Um, but it's just different. It's not, you know, I don't think that comparing artists or being sort of objective with art is helpful in any sort of way. But yeah, that is a thing, apparently. I mean, regardless of all of that, my own sort of hot take is that while I love his paintings and I think his paintings are great, um, I really sort of imprinted on the sculptures and the photography. Like those things speak to me the most, but I think that's just because I tend to gravitate towards those things in myself anyway. So now we're going to get into the materials portion of the video. And this is going to be the portion of the video where we talk about kind of the more interesting materials that a certain artist used, what ways they use them in, uh, and if there's something that, you know, is gleanable from from that. So I personally really like to learn about the things that people use because it always teaches me something about what I could possibly use that I might not have thought of. And so Cy Twombly had some pretty interesting materials that I think are worth talking about. He obviously used a lot of different things over his lifetime. We're talking about someone who was, who was creating, you know, over a period of like 80 years. Um, so I'm not going to talk about all of them, but sort of the more pervasive ones. Um, were house paint. That was like the the classic one that I I particularly remember from seeing his work for the first time. Um, it's also known sometimes as enamel paint. Um, if you're looking at like an artist placard um, next to like a work or something, and it says enamel paint, sometimes that could be house paint. It could be a. It's sort of a catch-all term for any sort of industrial paint um, that dries a certain way. And it can be anything from latex house paints to solvent-based paints to um, even like fingernail polish and things like that. So he used that a lot. And um, a lot of times he would plaster something, like he would like cover it in plaster. So that's the next one is plaster. And then he would put house paint or enamel paint on top of it. And sort of how he would get this creamy sort of interior texture um, out of these sculptures that he would make. 
One example of this is the sculpture called Untitled uh, that was made in New York in 1954. And as I say, he made more sculptures later in his life, but he was making sculpture the whole time. So in 1954, he made the wood and palm leaves one that was just called Untitled. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to see this at Gagosian here in L.A. in Beverly Hills not too long ago. It's really lovely and a lot bigger than I thought, actually. Another thing he would use a lot is chalk, per the biography name. Um, Panorama is a famous painting that has chalk on it. Um, all of the blackboard paintings are examples of this. I think most, if not all of them, have chalk. Chalk is an interesting material to choose to use because there is that element of being able to erase it really quickly and then like redo it really quickly, which I think was probably nice for somebody who found um, speed to be a kind of virtue in their work like he did. And if something didn't feel right, you know, you could just and then do it again. And then it would only add to the sort of um, depth of the whole thing. He also used just like pieces of wood that he would find around uh, Gaeta, around Italy and, and wherever he was. Um, he would, you know, cover them in plaster. He would paint over them. And then sometimes he would use wax crayon or grease crayon. He used that a lot in his drawings and paintings as well. Like he would write words on his paintings a lot so like Orpheus um that's a classic example or uh he used graphite in um the age of Alexander it's another example that I can think of off the top of my head he also made his own paper and his own books sometimes for his drawings I have these entire these entire books of his drawings and and sketches and stuff and a lot of them are made on um homemade paper with sort of holes in them because there would be cracks in the floor in New York where he would make them. Uh, and yeah, it was just, it was really about a, a sort of feverish kind of feeling all the way through his work. And what was pervasive was this element of romance. A lot of times there was a theme of flowers, a theme of poetry, a theme of literature, a theme of sort of pain and sex, um, whatever you want to call it. Eros, uh, this this bittersweet feeling. His work will always exist as this kind of mother, mothership, motherland for me. Um, and hopefully you enjoyed watching this episode about him, about his work, about the things that he used. I know it's pretty basic. It's pretty like skimming the surface. But what I want this channel to be is kind of a place to start and a tasting board of things like a, like think of it as a flight, a tasting flight. So that's all I have for you on Cy Twombly and his work. I hope this was helpful, enjoyable to watch. And um, hopefully, you know, the next time you see some of his work, maybe the volume will be turned up just a little bit more and you'll be able to get a little bit more out of it after learning stuff from this video. So if you enjoyed this, please like and subscribe and share and all the good things to get this channel up and running again. And, um, and yeah, leave a comment and let me know your thoughts down below. That's always very encouraging and exciting. And yeah, I'm just so happy to be back. I'm so happy to be here on YouTube again. It just feels really good to be in front of the camera and talking about things that I love. Also, if you personally have any creative projects coming up and you just want a sounding board or someone to listen to you talk about them for a while, uh, give any sort of guidance that I could possibly give, um, you can hire me as a creative coach. I will listen to all of your ideas. I will tell you things that I know. I will point you in the right direction if that's something that you want. Um, and if you're not sure if I could help you or not, but you want to know and you're interested, send me an email with your idea and I'll let you know if it's something that I can help with or not. So 
Um, if you do want to book with me, it's an interest.studio. And um, yeah, the blog with all the references and everything is A-N-I-N-T-E.R-E-S-T. That's just an interest with a dot before the R. Also follow the podcast if you haven't already. There will be an audio version of this video up on the podcast as well. Um, on Wednesdays and then the videos come out on Fridays and then there's a separate podcast episode that comes out either Saturday or Sunday. Definitely check out all of those things. It'll all be linked down below. So thank you so much for watching and I will see you guys in the next one. Ciao.